0: So if you do a quick search on Amazon, I'm sure there's a couple people that shop on Amazon in here, you'll, uh, you'll find out that there's actually over 70,000 how-to books. Some are very helpful, I'm sure, like how to make sourdough biscuits or something like that. Uh, and some probably aren't as much, you know, like how to grow a mullet, you know, that would make an 80s baseball star envious. All right. Now, maybe some of you would like that. I actually don't know if that's real, uh, but I didn't get to search all the titles, but I'm sure someone would buy that. And if that's you, that's OK. All right. But our culture is obsessed with how to's. Right. We're utilitarians who often overlook preliminary questions, clarifying questions like defining what something is. Uh, is, is it necessary? Like what's its purpose And why we should want to learn how to do X, Y, or Z before just jumping into, I should do this, right? And I think the same is true of spiritual matters and for living out the Christian life. As we'll see this morning, as we seek to grow in understanding what biblical prayer is, what Christian prayer looks like, we first have to ask questions like, what is prayer? Is it necessary, and does it actually do anything? Why does God want us to pray? So we have to ask those questions before we can get to the practical how-to questions of prayer. So it's only logical, I think, to seek the what and why questions before the how questions, because the former, it lays the foundation and motivation for the latter so I'm going to take a little while to get to the exposition of our text this morning. So this message will probably feel a little bit different than usual, but don't be afraid. I've got a plan and I'll get us there. OK, but it'll be helpful for you this morning. If you think of this message as more of a, a biblical theology of prayer, right? Viewed through the lens of the Lord's Prayer. As a model for how all of Scripture defines what prayer is and then teaches students of the Word to pray. So, the flow of the message will go something like this. You'll see it in your handout, right? First, the origin story of prayer. Second, the reason for prayer. Third, the effectiveness of prayer. Fourth, the model for prayer. And then lastly, there'll be a pointed challenge for us to pray together at the end. So let's dive in. Let's take a look at this prominent theme from Scripture together. So first, the origin story of prayer. Everybody loves a good origin story. That's why we're all drawn to superhero movies. right? They give you the most epic backstories and origin stories uh, of prayer really anything in in modern times, right? So let's look at the origin story of prayer. So it's somewhat debated that the day that prayer began, but it seems from scripture to be in Genesis chapter four. So after God creates the world, he permits the fall. Cain kills Abel. We read this in Genesis chapter four, verses 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So the key phrase is, at that time... People began to call upon the name of the Lord. This phrase is often overlooked, though. Uh, but it's important precisely because it's an anticlimax to the story. Why? Why is that? Well, because apparently God's promise of this serpent crusher in Genesis three fifteen it's being pushed further out into the future than perhaps was anticipated. The expected offspring of the woman is clearly neither Cain nor Abel nor Seth nor Enosh in in its ultimate sense, right? So what do people begin to do? They begin to call upon Yahweh. They begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, what does that mean, though? As this phrase is repeated across all of the Old Testament we see that what it means to call in the name of Yahweh is to participate in prayer in communion and relationship with the creator God of the universe. So calling on the name of the Lord becomes necessary and is a rich mercy because the fall fractures humanity's access to and relationship with God. So, One commentator states that when this phrase, calling on the name of the Lord, is used in the Old Testament, that it is asking God to intervene specifically to do one thing, to come through on his promises. And it's also to respond to God's promise-making initiative by asking him to act to fulfill those promises. Calling on the name of Yahweh is used to depict prayer, but, but not in simply a generic sense of, of what that word means, right? Rather, the idea of calling on the name of Yahweh is intrinsically related to God's commitment to rescue his people and deliver on the promises that he's made to them. Essentially, it's gospel-shaped prayer, Right. People who call on the name of the Lord, they do so because they realize their own weaknesses, their own neediness and dependence upon God for everything. So it's gospel driven and saturated even from its inception. And we see this as we move to the New Testament as well. So the New Testament is explicit about what our focus in prayer should be, because there are certain prayers that God said he will always answer. Did you know that? Have you thought about that recently? I'll tell you what they are. Number one, when we pray for forgiveness. Number two, when we pray to know God better. Number three, when we pray for wisdom and strength To live this Christian life according to God's will. And number four, when we pray for the spread of the gospel. God always promises to answer prayers. When we ask him to do his transformative work through his word and by his spirit. This is how God displays his goodness And his glory in our world. So we don't earn or deserve this great mercy, right? It's a gift. And as such, it's one of the primary God ordained means by which we as his people cope with life in the present until we see him face to face in eternity in the new creation where there will no longer be a need for prayer anymore. Because you'll be in the very presence of God himself in the most ultimate sense. So prayer, it's like it's for the soul, like salve is for the eyes, right? Or stitches for a deep wound or water for a parched mouth. It's a weapon against all kinds of evil and sin in our world. And, you know, I don't want you to misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that other categories for prayer don't exist, but rather they're peripheral or subservient to this main strand of biblical prayer, right? Calling on the name of the Lord to fulfill what he's already promised to do. So that's what prayer is. But why pray? Why pray then if God can't break his promises. He's sovereign and he'll do whatever he wants anyway. All right. So what's what's the point? Like, that's great. That's what prayer is. But why, why pray then? Isn't he already going to fulfill his promises? It's kind of a loaded question uh, that we don't have, you know, like all day to unpack. Uh, but let me try to help you out a little bit. So I think there are mainly three reasons the Bible gives us when it comes to the question of why pray that this brief kind of biblical theology of prayer shows us. So prayer is meant to one, foster trust and dependence upon God. Number two, produce a deeper fellowship with and love for God. And number three, involve us in the drama of God's kingdom building Agenda. So later, we'll see all three of these themes and, and a couple of other ones in the Lord's Prayer. But let's br- briefly just take a look at these three reasons for prayer. So trust independence. dependence. So first, God doesn't want us to pray that so he can find out what we need. Right. Like he doesn't like he doesn't know. Right. Jesus said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Matthew chapter six, verse eight. God wants us to pray so that our dependence on him can increase, right? When we come to him in prayer about something, we express a trust in him, a trust that he will hear and answer our prayers. Next is a deeper fellowship with and love for God. So second, God does not just desire that our trust in him will grow through prayer. He also desires that our love for him and our relationship with him will deepen and grow. Right? This is something that God delights in. It's also something that brings him glory and us great joy, right? So prayer fosters a deeper fellowship with and love for God. And third, the work of the kingdom is advanced through us, right? God wants us to pray because it allows us to be a part of what he's doing in our world. Right? There are things that God has ordained only take place because of or through our prayers. Our prayers flex the muscles of divine omnipotence and compassion. Our prayers are often the means by which God brings the lost to someone to hear and receive the gospel for the first time. Right? Our prayers are often the means God uses to heal the sick and the broken hearted. Now, granted, not always how we would like or in our timing, but that makes it no less significant. There, are, These these are the reasons we call in the name of the Lord, right? You and I are walking disasters, if we're honest with ourselves, right? We need a sovereign God to rescue us from sin, but also to guide us into eternity, right? When one day prayer is not going to be needed anymore because we'll be in his very presence that will taste that ultimate restoration with the rest of the people of God so we've seen our need for prayer we've seen why we pray seen what prayer is so let's look at just effectiveness of prayer for for just a moment before we jump into the Lord's prayer so our, our sin should disqualify us Right from requesting anything from a perfectly holy God. But the Bible tells us Jesus is the reason that our prayers are effective. He stands as the one mediator between God and men, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. And he himself said, Jesus himself said, No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14 Verse 6. So this is huge for, for Christian prayer, right? No longer are the words of the ancient Israelite Job true when he said, there, There's no arbiter between us, that is, him and God, who might lay his hand on me. There's, there's no one to do that. But that's not true anymore because of the cross of Christ. We have that. Mediator, those who have placed their faith and trust in him, they have that mediator in Christ that makes their prayers effective. However, our faith in him as mediator is crucial, for God is under no obligation to answer the prayers of those who have rejected his son. So at times, because he's merciful and gracious, He chooses to answer them. That that is true. However, he he doesn't promise to hear and answer the prayers of unbelievers in the same way that he promises to answer the prayers of true believers. So if you don't know Christ, your, your prayers will not be effective in the same sense that they are for God's people, right? You don't have the promises of scripture on your side because Christ has not become your mediator yet. But if you do know Christ, look at what is promised to you. Jesus said in John 16, 23, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. Now, when he said this, Jesus did not mean that we have to tack on some magical phrase in Jesus name at the end of every prayer. Right. Nor does this mean that God will give you any and everything that you ask for to fulfill your materialistic desires. What he means is that our prayers should be prayed based on his authority as our mediator and in accordance with his character, not based on our selfish greeds and lusts. When we pray, remembering why and how we can even approach God the Father in the first place with Christ as our mediator And in the power of the spirit with which he brings upon salvation, we can trust that our prayers will be effective in accomplishing God's purposes in and through us. So pray for the things he's promised to answer. Remember what they were forgiveness of sins, right? Wisdom to live life well, according to his will, the ability to know him better and for salvation and the spread of the gospel. And if you don't know Christ and you want these promises to be true for you, then you must confess and believe in his death and resurrection. I'd love to talk to you about that after the service. If you have questions about that. All right. So we took a little bit to kind of sketch a theology of prayer Uh, reasons and assurance for its effectiveness Now let's look at how to pray. How how do we pray? I think Jesus fully embraces the Old Testament pattern of what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. And I think uh, you'll see as you study in the New Testament that the New Testament prayers, they feed off of Jesus's template uh, for our own prayers in Matthew chapter six, verses nine through 13. So Jesus teaches us this powerful paradigm for giving voice to our own prayers. It's a way to tap into how God's woven uh, the fabric of the universe to to providentially intersect and interact with the prayers of his people. So notice I've I've been careful to define the Lord's prayer in a certain way. Right. Jesus gives uh, his disciples a model. Right. But it's only a model. So this is more about how, not what you should pray, right? It's more how, not what you should pray. So think about categories and attitudes of prayer rather than a secret magical formula, right? Think about it like an accordion, right? Once put together and as it expands out, you can fit different things into these categories that, that Jesus prays for, right? From evil, So let's briefly take each phrase in turn. So our father in heaven, not until Jesus, is it normal to address God as father? So typically Jews use titles for God ascribing such things as sovereignty, lordship, glory, for example, but Jesus designating God as father, And this opening line tells us the kind of God to whom prayer is offered, right? He's personal and caring. He's intimately personal and caring. He's not a tyrant. He's not a monster. But he's the ultimate father, right? So Jesus explains who God is so we can approach him with the right frame of mind in our prayers. In Christ, we are adopted as God's children and his spirit dwells. Within us. So we know God and have a relationship with Him through Christ, who's opened up the way of access to God. So we can have boldness and confidence in our prayers because our adoption in Christ, right? That positionally and relationally makes us, makes God our Father. But we don't want to miss the balance here, though, either. Right. We address God intimately as father, but we immediately recognize his infinite greatness by the addition in heaven. So he transcends. Right. He is transcendent. He's the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. He's the ruler of the cosmos who unfailingly works out his plan of salvation and redemption in our world. Right. This is the God to whom we come. So our prayers ought to be characterized by humility, awe, and reverence, but with familiarity and confidence. And this kind of bleeds into the next phrase here. Hallowed be your name. So God's name is God himself. It is who he is, who he's revealed himself to be particularly highlighted here, he's, he's holy. God's holiness is both his exaltedness over creation and his incorruptibility to sin. Therefore, who God is and what he commands must be held in proper reverence, right? His name that is who he is and what he stands for should not be disrespected by the thoughts and actions of those who are created in his image, especially not by Christians. The next phrase then says your kingdom come the kingdom of God's probably the most important and prominent theme in the gospel of Matthew. And we don't have time to unpack all of it here. It's a massive theme, but in relation to prayer Good Jews in the ancient world were waiting for the kingdom of God to come. They recited Kaddish an ancient prayer at the close of each synagogue service. I want you to notice the similarities between this prayer and the Lord's Prayer, right? In its uh, oldest form, it says something like this in English. Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world which he created. According to his will. May he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days and the lifetime of the whole house of Israel, speedily and soon. And to this say, Amen. So lots of familiar language and overlap between that prayer and the Lord's Prayer, right? Jesus no doubt prayed this prayer many times, but here is the key difference as it relates to the kingdom. Right. The Jew looked forward to the kingdom, whereas the reader of of Matthew's gospel while looking forward to its ultimate fulfillment at the consummation of all things also recognizes that the kingdom's already broken into our present reality right now and prays for its extension in this life as well as its ultimate display in the future. Therefore, this prayer longs for the kingdom of God right now, but it also recognizes its future ultimate fulfillment is is still yet to come. Right? It's this already not yet state that we live in. And you can see as, as we transition into the next phrase, this concept, this idea of the already and the not yet. So your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what's so profound about this phrase is it's actually like two-dimensional, right? It's not asking God to work and then we just sit back and just wait and we watch and see what happens, right? Let go and let God. That's ridiculous and I think Jesus thinks so too. Right? It's popular, but I think it's wrong, right? Jesus calls us to an active identification with the working out of the divine purposes of God himself, right? This means that if we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we must also live that way. So live like we believe that God will work his kingdom agenda through us. Right? But we can't take that lightly. Like that sounds nice, but it's not just a locker room pep talk, right? It's a way of life. We see something of the cost of praying this prayer by reflecting on the way Jesus used it in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion, don't we? Or think about all of the apostles and missionaries throughout the ages who all suffered immensely as they prayed through these categories of prayer and sought to see the proclamation of the gospel spread to the nations. In heaven, God's will is perfectly done now. Now. Right, For there's, there's nothing in heaven to hinder it. And biblical prayer looks for a similar state of affairs here on this earth, but at the same time knowing that it won't fully be achieved until the new creation. So this, this phrase in the prayer, I, th- I think it requests three things of us. Three things. That we seek to know all that we can about God's will from Scripture. Seek to know all that we can about God's will from Scripture. Number two, that we adjust our attitude and expectations according to it. And number three, that we obey it. So we seek to know God's will from Scripture. We adjust our attitudes and actions toward it and we obey it. So head, heart, in hands, right? Fully embracing what praying for God's will to be done truly means for us. All right, let's let's turn to the latter half of the prayer now. So the first three petitions focus on God's name, God's kingdom and God's will. God's name, God's kingdom and God's will. Now the last three petitions explicitly request things for ourselves, um, highlighting the needs of God's children, the needs that we have, right? And the first phrase requests, give us this day our daily bread. Now the bread mentioned here, it is real food, but it's more than that. I think it suggests all that we need in the physical realm. And notice this prayer is for our needs and not our greeds. Right? It is a prayer of provision for one day at a time for today. This petition reminds us of our need for constant daily dependence upon God. So the significance of this request, I think it's often lost on us because of the abundance of, of food that we have, the blessing that most of us have right? of not really knowing what it's like to be truly hungry In Jesus's day, however, to fail to earn a day's wage was to go hungry. It barely bought enough food for that particular day for the average person, right? So when we pray this petition, we're acknowledging our complete trust in our Heavenly Father to provide for our needs. You and I are not self-sufficient. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us. As much as we'd like to think we are, we were created to need God And each other, you and I have inadequacies, shortcomings and deficiencies, right? We're needy people and we need God to provide for us and sustain us further. God's God's not like Costco, right? You can't buy bulk spiritual nourishment, right? That's that's a myth. It's just not true. That's not true of any spiritual discipline. That's not how it works, Right, Constant communion with God is a creaturely need that we have. And a daily reliance upon God is necessary for the Christian life. So this entire template of prayer stresses the need for a posture of daily humility, dependence, and gratitude. Because we know that when we ask God for help, He will show himself faithful and all sufficient in the moment to carry us through this particular day. All right. Tomorrow has enough for us. Sometimes we can get so focused on the things that are ahead that we stop realizing what God's doing in the present. Moment. So Jesus is trying to refocus our minds to live in light of eternity, but to do so in the present moment, right? Because to not do that is to not live life at all. All right, next line now. Forgive us our debts as we also. Have forgiven our debtors. So here, sins referred to as a debt. So this is a petition of confession of our sins to God and seeking forgiveness from Him. Right. So when we pray in this way, we're acknowledging God's holiness and how we've sinned against Him. Right. It also recognizes that God's gracious and merciful. Right. Serves two purposes. Because God has loved us in Christ, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, sometimes this this question comes up. Does does this petition teach us that God forgives us because we've forgiven others? Seems to sound like that, right? Uh, No, it teaches us that we who have been forgiven much by God ought to also forgive others. This is the point that Paul makes in Colossians 3:13: "Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive." John Stott once wrote of this phrase in the Lord's Prayer these words. I think it's really helpful. "Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense, against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison, extremely trifling. If on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it it proves that we have minimized our own. And I think that's exactly right. So positionally, if you are a Christian Right? You have been forgiven once for all at the cross for all of your sins. That's Hebrews chapter 10. But your ongoing relational intimacy with God and others is absolutely affected deeply by your daily habits of confession, of sin and repentance, and your capacity to forgive those who have offended you. final phrase. Now, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So first God tempts no one. James one tells us that, right? So what does this mean? Uh, the Christian is one who knows their own weaknesses and in praying like this seeks to be kept far from anything that may bring them to sin. So it's a prayer for help from God to successfully flee from temptation and sin. All right. So that's, that's a lot of material. So a few summary points, and then I'll get to our application for this morning. So what it means from Genesis to Revelation to pray is to call upon the name of the Lord, to plea with him to do what he's already promised to do, as our covenant Lord. Why pray though? Well, because it fosters a trust independence upon God, right? It creates deeper fellowship and love for God. It involves us in the drama of God's kingdom building agenda. How do I know my prayers are effective? Well, because Christ is our mediator between us and God, right? So as we pray in the power of the spirit, Uh, We can have confidence because of our gift of adoption in Christ that our prayers are made effective. And as we've just seen, all of these things and a few others are present. These themes in our text this morning from the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Matthew. So Jesus in showing us this model for prayer is thinking in these categories as he teaches us to pray. Now, I've intentionally left one more element untouched at this point, and I think you'll see why in just a moment. Uh, But I do hope that you've noticed that these petitions also express our love for others, right? It introduces that aspect of relationships into our prayers. It reminds us that believing the gospel has profound and far-reaching implications for how we ought to love one another in Christ, It's impossible to be self-centered and pray in the manner of the Lord's prayer. Notice how the Lord's prayer is in the plural, not singular. So there is no doubt a place for praying as an individual, but the general pattern of our praying must be farther reaching than, than just praying as individuals, Therefore, when you and I, as one follower of Christ among millions, address our Father and His will, our concerns are for our daily bread, our sins, our temptations, and not just mine. Right? So with that being said, I have just one application, a challenge for you this morning. Uh, specifically to lean into corporate communal prayer together. So many of you are aware of this, uh, but here's, here's one way you can do this. Every Sunday morning at 830, we gather in the ta- cafeteria to pray over the service uh, that's about to take place for the people that will step through those doors. And we petition the Lord to transform people right through our gathered worship by the power of His spirit and through the preaching of His word. We pray for the lost to find salvation right We pray through these different categories that Jesus gives us. Prayer happens as in at the individual level and families and community groups and, and all of those things are wonderful, and we're thankful for those and those those are expected right. Uh, that's just part of living the Christian life well. But also, uh, as a church, at Grace Life, we have a specific designated designed space where we can pray on a continual basis together, and that takes place on Sunday mornings. So, before I give you the challenge, I want you to know, like, I don't think I'm the only one that's been underwhelmed by a lot of prayer meetings I've been to. Right. I don't think I'm the only one that's been like, ah, this feels like a waste of time or this feels disorganized. Like this thing is painful. When's it going to end? I don't want to be here anymore. Right. We've all we've all felt that. And every time we meet, it's not like it's amazing. Right. But that's that's just life. Right. But what I can tell you is that it is organized. It is meaningful. It is purposeful. And I can tell you for sure that there are people in this room right now that God has used that Sunday morning prayer to bring them here to us to hear the gospel. Right. So, uh, Seth, you want to put that slide up for me? So I have a challenge for you. Uh, I've been working with Crystal Beach to get a sign-up page on our website, right? So, what I would like to challenge you to do is—I think it's a modest challenge, right? I want you, as a member of Grace Life Church, to commit to come pray with us once a quarter. Okay, I'm no mathematician. I'm a man of words. Right. But that's four times a year. Right. That's four Sundays out of I think there's 52 weeks. Right. That's four out of 52 weeks. Right. I think we can do it right now. Nobody's putting a gun to your head. Nobody's saying like, oh, you have to show up every time or like. So if you want to. Awesome. Like, that's great. There are people that come regularly. They bring their families. The kids pray. It's awesome. Right. But that's not the expectation. We just want to provide an opportunity and a challenge for you to participate in praying with us together as one body. Right. So if you go to GracelifeAnkeny.org, there'll be an events page and in the drop down menu, you'll find a pre-service prayer sign-up sheet. All it asks for is a name and an email address and a phone number, and it has a little calendar. So my challenge to you is, if you have your phone, do it now. Pull it out and pick on that calendar in the next two to three months a date that you'll commit yourself to to come and pray with us. All right. Now, on the mobile app, it looks a little bit different. You have to click the Join Us little button, and it'll take you to a new page. On the left-hand side, there's three little slashes. You click that, it'll get you the events drop-down menu, right? If you don't want to do it right now, do it after the service, do it sometime today, right? That'll send you an email, you get the email, put it in your calendar, and come join us, right? Sound good? All right, let me pray for us. Father, you've shown us. That prayer is an offering up of our desires to you for things according to your will in the name of your son, Jesus, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement for your rich mercies through your creation and providence. You provide our bread, your son's atonement secures our forgiveness. The Spirit's indwelling power assures our safety and triumph over sin and death. Thank you for making a way for us to participate in an ongoing relationship with you. Thank you for the gift of prayer and all that you have ordained take place in and through our communion with you through prayer. Help us to long to be in your presence through prayer today and each day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.